you may have noticed that uh, this morning I'm, I've got a new fashion accessory. Anybody notice this? It's a fine thing. That's why I'm sitting on a stool this morning. Um, I got this wonderful boot uh, this week. So uh, here's the story. Um, I was, uh, uh, my wife Lori and I married off our only daughter this last weekend, uh, last Saturday. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, so it was a great day. Um, but uh, the Thursday before that, so this is, so we married her on Saturday. And so the Thursday before that, I was carrying a box of something wedding related. I don't know what it was. It wasn't breakable. I know that because it, it got tossed on my way down. But uh, I was carrying a box out to the car um, so that we could take it over to the, uh, um, to the place where we were having the wedding. And uh, there was some uneven concrete there. Uh, where the car was at, I was carrying a big box, and I didn't see the uneven concrete, and so I, I stepped, and I twisted my ankle, and, but for whatever reason, the, the, the driveway was, uh, you know, sloped downward, so I just kind of kept moving. If I hadn't, I'm, I'm fairly certain that if I hadn't kept moving, it was going to break, and, uh, but it hurt. I mean, it really hurt, and, and I've twisted my ankle before, and I thought, boy, this, is, this just isn't the best timing in the world, but it was one of those, one of those things where, um, you know, you twist your ankle and like a good dad does, you just rub some dirt in it and walk it off, right? That's what you do. You just like, I'm just going to keep going. And so being that it's a Thursday before the wedding, you know, two days before the wedding, I'm just like, I got to tough this out. Like, I'm just going to keep going. I'm, I'm not going to miss walking my daughter down the aisle. I'm not going to miss the daddy-daughter dance. Like, I'm just going to tough this thing out. My wife, Lori, you know, uh, said, well, you know, e- even Friday night, she said, maybe, maybe we should go to the hospital real quick and get this x-rayed. No, 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 I'm not going to do that. So I loaded up on ibuprofen, probably more than anybody should, but I loaded up on ibuprofen and I just toughed it out. And so, uh, but by uh, this past Wednesday, um, just a few days ago, that the swelling hadn't gone down and it was still hurting. And uh, so, as any good wife would do, my wife said, maybe you should go to the doctor and get that thing x-rayed. And so, as any good husband would do, I waited till Thursday to do it. Um, And so, I had been walking on it for seven days. And I got to the doctor, they x-rayed it, and discovered that I had fractured my ankle and had been walking on it for seven days. So, so I get this lovely boot to wear now. the crazy thing is, is that like I knew it hurt, right? It was swelled up, it was bruised. I knew that it hurt. Like there was some acute pain and I knew that I had to take ibuprofen to get the swelling down and all that kind of stuff. But the fact is, is that I'm, I, I couldn't see what was going on inside, right? All I could do was feel the symptoms of the pain, but I didn't know until an expert you know, took me into a little room and x-rayed my, my ankle to know that it was actually fractured. Um, here's what I know about myself. I am a deeply fractured man. I know that about myself. I know that there are things in my life that I know are broken. As we just sang that song, um, like I, I know that I'm a broken vessel. I know that there are very broken things about who I am. Um, sometimes I can see the brokenness. I mean, it's, it's acute, like there's no way of avoiding it. I can see the brokenness. But a lot of times in my life, there are fractured, the, fractures that are so hidden. They're just blind spots to me, areas that I just, I'm just unaware of. I can feel the pain, 
I can know that there's something not right about it, but I just don't know exactly what it is. I don't know where it is. And my guess is that many of you, like me, um, are also deeply fractured people. Um, that there are things in your life that, um, that cause you some pain. And sometimes you can see them. You can recognize that this is, a, this is an area of sin or a blind spot in my life. But sometimes it's just so deep that you just can't see it. It's just impossible to see by the naked eye. Sin has a, a way of doing that to us. It, it tends to cloak itself in a lot of different ways. It is very deceptive. And it can ravage us like a cancer if we're not careful. And so the, the idea I want to I bring across today is this. And that is in order to combat what I'm going to call the subtle drifts of unbelief and the blind spots that we have in our life, we must invite others to become intentionally intrusive. We must invite people to be intentionally intrusive and to have redemptive kind of relationships. And that at times we need to be that to other people as well. So we're going to unpack some of that today and we're going to use Hebrews chapter 3 to help us in that. Hebrews chapter 3 verses 12 through 13 warns us as brothers and sisters in Christ to be watchful of the drift towards unbelief and spiritual blindness. The writer starts by imploring us in verse 12. He says, take care. Be careful or watchful. This is a warning to those of us. um, There there really is, I think, two parts of this. There's a warning to those who who believe that they are Christians, but, but in and fact are not. They may do all the right things, say all the right things, but in fact have never put their faith and trust in the Lord. And so this is a warning to those, and there, there may be some here sitting today, like you've, you're still wrestling with things, and, and you, you may say the right things, you may even sing the songs, you may do that, but your, your heart just has not yet um, given itself to the, to the Lord fully. You've never followed him in obedience. And so that, that's a very clear um, warning uh, to anyone who may find themselves outside of um, salvation. But I also think that there is also a warning to those of us who are in Christ, um, and I do think we can find it in this passage that to those of us who are brothers and sisters who are following the Lord, who have given ourselves in faith, but yet there are still subtle drifts towards unbelief. There are still ways in which we um, find ourselves um, with spiritual blindness. Now, it's not to the to the, to the place here where it suggests that we're, we're somehow going to lose our salvation. That, that's impossible. For anyone who's in Christ, it is an impossibility for us to lose our salvation. And so what I'm not suggesting here is that somehow we drift so far or we have such spiritual blindness that somehow we lose, um, we lose our salvation. That's not what I'm suggesting. But there are for us drifts towards unbelief and spiritual blindness that can severely handicap us in our, in our faith. And so we too need to be watchful and careful as we examine our lives towards those areas of unbelief. And so we see first that there is these subtle patterns of drift towards unbelief. He talks about it here in Hebrews chapter 
uh, 3, verse 12. It says, take, brother, uh, take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be any of you, in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, again, you can take that to the far extreme, right? But you can also see that there are patterns of behavior that we can tend to fall into that lead us away from those. Again, none of us are immune to this subtle drift. Even the disciples were rebuked by Jesus uh, after his resurrection. In Mark chapter 16, verse 14, he said, Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. See, the eleven here are, are also, <laughs> they, they were susceptible to this kind of this unbelief and this hardness of heart. And so if the disciples can, can experience this, can fall into this kind of trap, then we too, as disciples of Jesus, can also find ourselves drifting apart, finding ourselves in areas of unbelief and hardness of heart. So how does this happen? How does this happen in our lives? Well, there is a bit of a, a progression of sorts. Um, we get some clues from the entire chapter of Hebrews chapter 3, and the writer uses an example from a story in the Old Testament. Um, verses 7 through 11, he's actually uh, quoting Psalm 95. And so he, he writes, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways, and I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The, the psalmist is reflecting on uh, the Israelites, and he's referring to a really significant moment, event in the Old Testament that we find actually in Numbers chapter 14. That's what the psalmist in Psalm 95, he's referring back to a story and event that we find in Numbers 14. And it's the moment in history where the Israelites have reached the edge of the promised land and Moses has sent spies into the land and the spies have come back and they've reported, there's no way we can take this land. There's no way that we can do this. It's the, the people are too big. The, the, there's no way that we can win this war. And so it says that instead of believing in the promises of God, Instead of believing the promises that God has been giving them for 40 years, instead, they have a fear of man, and now they are moving into a place of unbelief, or they have moved into a place of unbelief. And so God, in his anger, in his righteous anger, says, well, this generation will never cross into the promised land. There are some indicators toward unbelief that we even find in, this, in the story of the Israelites. I mean, we understand that the Israelites tend to struggle with this a lot, right? For a moment, they'll see God in his majesty and glory. They're following a pillar of fire and of smoke, and, and they see him in his grandeur. And then the very next day, right, they, their hearts move to a place of unbelief where they be frightened about something or, they, or they're grumbling and complaining. So there are some indicators towards a drift, a drift towards unbelief that we find in the Israelites. One is that that there tended to be grumbling and complaining. We find that in Numbers chapter 14. It's like they're a grumbling and complaining people. We do find that there's a, there's a fear of man. They're more afraid of, uh, of 
the enemy, they're more afraid of the, the giants in the land than they are um, relying on the promises of God. I mean, they even say, why is the Lord bringing us into this land? Is it to fall by the sword? There's also a questioning of the goodness and the promises of God. Moses reminds them of the promise in Numbers 14. He says, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Like Moses is constantly trying to remind them, like, listen, God God has promised us good things. He's promised us victory. If God wants to give us these things, he will surely do it. We can count on God's promises. But the Israelites, because their hearts drifted towards unbelief, would say, no, God is not good. God is not faithful. And they would ignore the promises of God. They had a, a, often had a forgetfulness of God's faithfulness. It even reminds us here in, in Psalm 95 that, that God has given them 40 years of protection and deliverance from Egypt. Like, if anyone should have understood how faithful God is, the Israelites should have experienced that over 50, 40 years of God just continually providing for them over and over and over again. But yet their hearts drift towards unbelief. And then the Lord asked them, how long will they not believe me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? Despite of everything that they've seen, why do their hearts continually drift towards unbelief? And then Eventually, there is a falling away from the living God. And God's verdict is, they shall not enter my rest. They shall not enter my rest. Now, there is is a a bit of a progression here. And most people don't go from zero to 60, you know, uh, in in three seconds, right? And that's why I say it's a subtle drift of unbelief. And I know that on my own heart. Like, there are days where I can stand firmly on the promises of God. I remember how good he's been to me over my last 48 years of life. I can, I can give you testimony of God's faithfulness and his goodness in my life. I can point to all kinds of things. And then the very next day, the very next day, when something hard comes against me, when I have a difficult conversation, when I feel criticized, or then my heart begins to drift very subtly, and I start to question, is God really good? Now, sometimes, most of the time, I don't say that out loud, right? But I can sense it in my own heart. I know that there's a drift. I need to be constantly reminded of the gospel. I, I found myself doing this even yesterday. <laughs> As I'm, I'm preparing, I'm finishing up this sermon, and I find myself yesterday hit with some incredibly difficult things, and I find myself, my heart beginning to drift I just, I just have to continually cry out to God, God, help me in this. Why is it that my heart just tends to move away from you and be so forgetful? Maybe you've identified some of these indicators in your own life. Maybe there's some, some areas of grumbling and complaining. Maybe there's a fear of man. Maybe there's questioning of God's goodness and his promises. Maybe there's just forgetfulness of his faithfulness. I, I don't know what it is in your life. I don't, I don't know how the enemy goes on the attack in your own life to help to, to try to move you away from, from, from where God would want you to be. But the author here in, in, in Hebrews 3 is trying to make a point. He's, he's, 
he's used them, and he's used the Israelites as an example. He's saying the people who God brought out by pillar of smoke by day and pillar of fire by night, like they ended up missing what God had for them because of their own unbelief. As if to say, if anyone should have no trouble believing that God is good and faithful, it should have been the Israelites. If anybody, like they, if anybody should have known, it should have been them. But the truth is, if they can fall, if they can drift in their hearts towards unbelief, so can we. So can we. And what our author is doing is warning us against doing the same thing that Israel did. You don't know that your heart is hardening, that you are developing a pattern on belief because sin is incredibly deceitful. Sin is so incredibly deceitful. And that deceitfulness of sin leads us into spiritual blindness. It all, sin always masquerades itself as something else, right? It never just, it typically just doesn't come at us straightforward, right? And you see it and you go, oh my gosh, it's just pure evil, right? I've got to stay away from that. No, it, 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 it masquerades itself. It puts on a pretty dress and, and it entices us in some way, right? It makes us feel at ease. And then we somehow just, through our time, those moments of, unbelief, then it just moves us to spiritual blindness. In verse 13, it says, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Um, uh, My dad uh, passed away a number of years ago, uh, over 20 years ago, and uh, and I was, had a a little bit of a complicated relationship with my dad. I love my dad, um, but it always, we, we always send him butt heads quite a bit. And, uh, and, and most of it was because um, even though I admired my dad and there was so many wonderful characteristics about him, there were also, of course, in every person, there was characteristics about him that annoyed me, that I just didn't like, right? And so as the oldest son, he and I would butt heads occasionally, right? And, uh, and, and so what I started to recognize, though, was um, as I became a father myself, um, I would think to my dad and I would say, okay, here are the things that I, I want to do and repeat the good things that my dad did, right? And then there's the things that my dad did, I'd say, I will never do it that way. Any dads out there feel that way? Like, I'm never going to do this like my, I'm, I'm never going to yell at my kids the way my dad did, right? Um, I'm never going to discipline my kids the way my dad did. Here's a clue. If you're not a dad um, yet, um, you are, you are prone to, to repeat history. Like it is, what I found is that all the things that I didn't like about my dad, the things that deteriorated him, irritated me about him, are the exact kinds of things that I just have repeated with my own children, right? And I'm sure my boys, my oldest son um, has our first granddaughter um, who's about ready to turn one, and I'm sure the exact same pattern is going to happen. We're just going to repeat the same history over and over and over again. The things that he didn't appreciate about my parenting, he's probably going to bound to repeat. Why is that? It's like, because as people, we tend to have things about us that are just blind to us. Like I didn't, when I'm yelling at my kids, I wasn't thinking in my head like, oh, you said you weren't going to do this, right? When I'm yelling at my kids, I just, it just comes out because I, I don't recognize that this is an area of blindness in my life. 
And then when I'm done yelling at my kids, I go, why did I do that? What is wrong with me? But we all have blindness in our life. And it is a danger for all of us. It's the things that we don't know that we don't know. It's the worst, isn't it? Things that uh, you just wish someone would tell you about yourself. Those are hard things because we are blind to our blindness. And in our blindness, we need help. We desperately need help. We need instruments of seeing. The writer of Hebrews gives us a really practical application um, for our subtle drift towards unbelief and our spiritual blindness. He says there in verse 13, he says, but exhort one another every day as long it is, as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, we all need instruments of seeing. If you're spiritually blind, you need someone to come along and help you to see what you can't see, what you're blind to. If you're drifting towards um, unbelief, you need someone to come and expose you to the truth of who you are and the drift that's taken place. Paul Tripp says, that we need, uh, I've got this little quote, we need intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive relationships. We need intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive relationships. The writer of Hebrews says, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. More than likely, uh, none of, uh, no one does this voluntarily for you. There's probably no one that just comes up to you out of the blue and says, hey, I have a word that I want to give to you to exhort you, right? To, to reveal an area of blindness or um, some unbelief in your life. There's probably very few people that do that um, without some kind of invitation. Would that be true for you? I mean, I know that's true for me. Like, there's rarely people that just come up and say that. But we, we need to invite someone. You will need to invite someone in your life to do that. It might be your spouse, a best friend. It may be uh, a pastor or someone who is discipling you or counseling you. But self-examination is a community project. Get that? Self-examination is a community project. You cannot examine yourself. There are fractures in your life that you cannot see. You can't. You can feel the acute pain. You can try to isolate where they are, but if you are blind to them, if you have somehow drifted very subtly towards unbelief, you will need someone who's going to be intrusive in your life, who's going to be able to see the things that you can't see and name them and call them out. Who? Who in your life does that for you? It really was the role of Moses. We think back to the Israelites, like, what was his role? Moses was constantly calling out the sin and the spiritual blindness and the drift of the Israelites. We see that in Numbers 14. So he's constantly, why are you doing what you're doing? How have you forgotten God's promises? Did you not remember how faithful God has been over the last 40 years? He's pleading with them. This week, um, uh, 
Pastor Bryant and Pastor James and I had lunch together. Um, and uh, we decided we weren't going to really talk shop a whole lot. We just were going to have lunch together. And so we talked a little bit about this passage. I said, this is the passage I'm preaching on this Sunday. And we talked about it. And uh, the, the wonderful thing was is that we all agreed that we need that in our own lives. And began some conversations of like, how can we do this for each other? We each need this. There is no one in this room, no one in this room, who is beyond the deceptiveness of sin. No one. There is no one in this room who, who doesn't fall in the trap of settling, drifting to places of unbelief. There's no one in this room who is not blind to some things in your life. There's no one in this room you are all susceptible to it. Now, everyone's things are going to be different. Like, my stuff is different than your stuff, right? But we each need one another to do this. How often? Well, the writer of Hebrews said it, as long as, as it is called today. Um, is it still called today, today? Okay, all right, well, keep doing it today, right? Until it's not called today, um, then you can stop, right? But as long as it's called today, then you need to continue to exhort and be exhorted. Because the, the temptation is every single day. I know sometimes we pretend like it's not. But the reality is, is that I know every single day this is the constant battle in my life. Constant battle. There's no way around it. Satan is so deceptive, so crafty. And I cannot let my guard down one day. The writer is communicating that there is still time. As long as it's still called today, there is still time for you to be moved back. It's not too late. But know that this is impossible for you to do on your own. You cannot do this on your own. You need this and you will need this. You will need to do this for someone else. So it's not just receiving exhortation. You will, you will have to be a seer, you will have to be someone that sees this in someone else and exhorts them as well. Charles Spurgeon, while preaching this particular passage, says this. Uh, I love this. He says, what kind of man would you like to hear? Will you give your ear to the one who will please you to your ruin and flatter you with destruction? Surely you are not so foolish. Do you choose the kind of doctor who never tells you the truth about your bodily health? Do you trust the one who falsely assures you that there is nothing the matter with you when all the while a terrible disease is folding its cruel arms about you? Your doctor will not hurt your feelings. He washes his hands with invisible soap and gives you a portion of the same. He will send you just a little pill and you will be all right. He would not have you think of that painful operation which a certain surgeon has suggested for you. He smirks and smiles until after a little while of him and his pills, you say to yourself, I'm getting worse and worse. And yet he smiles and smiles and flatters and soothes. I've done with him and his little pills and go to the one who will examine me honestly and treat me properly. He may take his soap and his smile elsewhere. Oh, sirs, believe me, I would think it a waste of time, nay, a crime like that of murder, to stand here and prophesy smooth things to you. We must learn to hear what we do not like, 
The question is not, is it pleasant, but is it true? Is it true? There's a temptation for us to isolate ourselves. See, that's what sin does. That's what sin does. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him, and the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. There is that constant temptation to isolate ourselves because we want to hide, right? We want, we want to hide the sin and the shame. We, want, we don't want people to see. Like, I mean, it's, it's embarrassing for me to wear this boot. Like, it's, it's not attractive, right? I don't want anyone to know that I'm injured. But the truth is, I am, and I cannot mask it. I am hurt, and I need help. And there is no way to find real healing unless I address the real injury that is in my life. I need help. This is not an easy thing to do. Inviting someone into an intrusively, um, intentionally intrusive relationship. That's not an easy thing to do. Uh, so um, I have a spiritual mentor who um, I've been uh, meeting with every month um, for the last couple of years. And he, he gave me an assignment a few months in while we were talking. And he, uh, so this was my assignment. He said, I want you to go to um, someone close to you. He said, probably Lori, your wife. And I want you to ask her this one question. And the question is this. If there, if, um, uh, what would be the one thing that you would change about me? That's the question I was supposed to ask my wife. What's the one thing you would change about me? I resisted for a couple of days. Because, uh, like, who wants to hear the answer to that? And at first, uh, Lori was very like, I'm not going to answer that question. She's like, there's no way I'm answering that question, right? But I, I pleaded with her. I said, well, it's part of my homework, so I have to do this, right? So you, you, need, you need to answer the question. So if there's one thing that I could change about myself or that, I could, that you would change about me, what would it be? The answer, I'm not going to tell you. No? <laughs> Now, the answer um, hurt me very deeply, but it was the truth. It was the truth. Um, my mentor asked me the, the next time that we met, he said, did you ask? And I said, yes, and I told him what she said. And he said, what was your reaction? He said, because actually that will tell you more about this area of fracture, brokenness in your life than really the answer to the question. We need to invite intentionally intrusive people into our life, into these kind of redemptive relationships, people who are going to ask us the hard questions. And I'm not talking about just an accountability partner. I mean, accountability partners are good. Like, that's a peer relationship. I'm talking about someone that you invite into your life who's going to ask you the hard questions and is willing to point out the areas of unbelief, the areas of spiritual blindness in your life. And I can guarantee you it is going to hurt in the moment. It is going to hurt in the moment. But let me just plead with you. Unless we have people in our life who are intentionally intrusive, that are Christ-centered, 
right? Redemptive relationships that are gospel-centered, who are going to do this for us and help us to see these things, we are going to miss out on tremendous areas of growth in our life. Those kind of relationships are a gift from God. They are a gift. They can help point out those things that are so deep in us that we want to avoid and we want to try to isolate from. But at the end of the day, some of those, some of those conversations you have will be the most fruitful in your transformation. They will most be the most fruitful in your transformation. Our goal in being transformed is to look like Jesus. To look like Jesus. And if you have spiritual blindness and areas of unbelief in your life, then, then you're moving away from that and not towards it. So let me encourage you that it may be one of the most fruitful actions you can take in seeing your life truly transformed into the image of Christ. The goal, the goal is real transformation. It's sanctification that leads to your glorification. Verse 14 gives us the goal in this. It says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Firm to the end. That we get to share in Christ. There will be a day when it is not called today. Right? There will be a day. A day will come and we don't know when it will be. I pray, Lord Jesus, come today. But there will be a day when it is not called today. And we will stand before the throne of God. And if we have held firm to the end, when the day of judgment comes, we shall all share in Christ. That is the promise that we have. First John says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. It's not here yet. You don't look the way that you want to look or you need to look or are supposed to look. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Moses is not the hero of this story. And neither are you. Right? When we start this uh, chapter 3, we, we read this morning, it was talking about Moses and, and kind of his role at being the, 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 you know, the prophet, being the one who's uh, helped the house of Israel and all these things and and. and and Moses was a great man. He was a great man. But the writer of Hebrews says he is not Jesus. He's not Jesus. He says, we believe in Jesus is our high priest. That he is faithful. That he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And that Jesus alone is faithful over God's house as a son. What the writer of Hebrews reminds us of. We need this desperately in our life, and, and others will need you to do this in their life. But you are not the hero of this story, and nor is Moses. Jesus is greater than Moses in every way. Because Jesus did something that Moses could never do. He done something that none of us can ever do, or the people that will speak into your life can never do. And that's, he's redeemed us. He saved us. So we need people to speak into our lives, but that speaking into our lives, that calling out, that exhorting in our lives doesn't heal us. All it does is exposes the hurt. It exposes the fractures. We all need that. My doctor, right, 
When I went in to do the x-ray, she came back and she said, you have a fracture in your leg. And she prescribed some things like wearing this boot and taking Tylenol and those kind of things, but the fact is that she couldn't heal me. It was impossible for her to do that. It was impossible for me to heal myself. Like, I can't do that. In our lives, we need people who are going to speak into us, to going to name the things in our lives that, that, have, that are spiritual blindness and areas of unbelief. But at the end of the day, there's only one, there is only one that can heal your brokenness, and that is Jesus.